Welcome to the Mercy Comments podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Nick. We have been going through the book of Hebrews. Um, we are halfway, and um, we are in chapter 8. I know, Saxon's rolling his eyes. I don't know what that means, but... Um, one of the reasons we do that is because the thing that shapes us the most as a community is not community. Community is a gift given to us by God. The thing that shapes us the most is when we submit our lives to the Word of God. And to fully understand the Word of God, it's important to be able to understand the full breadth of Scripture. And the only way that you can do that is to actually sink yourself into a book and understand its context, its original um, audience, and what the Spirit of God is saying to us today. And so, last week, I talked about the Better Covenant, part one. This feels a little like a DC movie, but there aren't 47 parts to this. There's, there's only two. And we spoke about the fact that the writer of Hebrews is talking about the fact that we have a better message, because we have a better message, we have a better high priest. Because we have a better high priest, we have a better tabernacle or tent, because we are the living tabernacle and tent of God, and that's what we covered last week. And therefore, we have a better covenant. And so we start our reading this morning in Hebrews 8, verse 7 to 13. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with him when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds." And write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each other his neighbor, and one shall say, sorry, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Father, thank you for the power of your word. I want to pray for your grace and anointing to be able to be faithful to it. And I want to pray for my brothers and sisters to be responsive to it in Jesus' name. What is a covenant? I am a Guy Ritchie fan. Don't judge me. Um, I like his movies. And uh, his latest movie is called The Covenant. It's a bit of a bloody movie. It uh, takes place in Afghanistan, and it's about his interpreter. This captain has an interpreter that saves him. This guy doesn't ask to be saved. Um, he's in incredible amounts of danger, and so the interpreter literally moves him on an ox cart and saves his life. When he comes to in a hospital, he's back in the States, he realizes that because this interpreter has done what he's done, he is now in mortal danger, and the Taliban is looking for him, 
and trying to kill him. No intentional covenant was made between these men. The one man decided to save the other man. The other man felt an obligation and a responsibility to reciprocate that covenant. I'm not going to be a spoiler for you. I know half of you are not even interested in knowing how that movie ends. Um, but, um, but what I want to say is that that's what we understand about a covenant. It's a reciprocal agreement. Uh, it requires both parties to agree. Um, and each party has equal status, equal responsibility, and equal accountability. However, the word that's used in this text for covenant is not the word that's typically used for covenant. It's, it's actually the word will or testament. Um, and in a couple of weeks, we'll be talking more about that because the writer of Hebrews begins to talk more about the fact that what God has done is basically left a will, a testament. And why that's important is because ultimately what we need to recognize is the covenant that God has made with us or is making with us is not a reciprocal covenant where we have equal status, where we have equal responsibility and equal accountability. The covenant that God is making with us is basically saying, I will do this. Regardless of how you behave or what your posture is, I will do this. The only thing you need to do is to submit to the covenant. That is all that you need to do. In a one-sided will or testament, the terms are set by the person that is giving the covenant. The receiving party cannot alter them. They can only accept or reject them. Now, we know of funny, stupid movies where someone leaves a will and says this person can't receive the money until they get married or, you know, I mean, there's lots of kind of feel-good movies like that. The challenge with that is you can't change the terms of that covenant. You can either accept them or you can reject them. But you can't go back and actually say, well, no, I want to receive the money, but I don't want to get married. No, it's, it's basically saying this. These are the conditions of the covenant. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that there was a covenant that was meant to lead people to God that was completely fulfilled in Jesus. But now that covenant is void. It is a new covenant. Now, the challenge that we have in our minds is how can it be new if it was spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah hundreds of years before this came to fruition. And so it's kind of weird because this covenant, this new covenant, is and isn't new. He quotes directly from Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 34. Have you guys heard these ad campaigns called New and Improved, right? Have you seen them? Like, is it new? Or is it improved? Because, come on, English majors, help me out here. It can't be both. Because if it's new, then it's new. If it's improved, then it's improved. But it can't be new and improved. And I found some of these things that frustrate me with the new and improved stuff. You know what I mean? Here's the old boring shreddies. And there's the new exciting shreddies. It's new. You know what I mean? The, the marketers are trying to help you understand that the reason you should buy this is because it's new and improved. This will change your life. Diamond shreddies is what you need to buy. Uh, parents, next time your kids ask for something new, try that. See how that works. Just turn it around. You know what I mean? If they don't want to eat broccoli, then just chop it up in fine pieces. It's new. It's, it will change your life, you know? I think this is an interesting one. New and improved and you can't even tell. <laughs> I, 
I literally sat there for 30 seconds trying to figure out what does this mean? New and improved, and you can't, take, uh, you can't even tell. Three months ago, we started selling a new recipe without additives and preservatives, and none of you could even tell. Are you kidding me? You want to draw attention to the fact that that's what you did, and that's why it's new and improved? And the challenge we have, we live in the society of, of like, no, you've got to try this. This is new. Um, when I was in, um, in Nepal, they had a name for a cortado, and they called it a piccolo. And so I came here to a coffee shop and asked for a piccolo to see what they said. Oh, you mean a cortado? And I'm like, yeah, I guess that's what I mean. It's, it's just a, a new word for something that's been around for a while. And the challenge that we have is that this isn't a trick that the writer of Hebrews is saying. This isn't a trick. This, this is new. Now, the new that he's talking about is new not so much in relation to time, but it's new in relation to quality. So the Greek word for new in terms of time is neos, and the Greek word for new in relation to quality is kainos. And so what he's saying is this is a new, not in relation to the fact that no one has ever seen this, it's new in relation to its quality. For the first covenant, verse 7 says, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. Now the word fault is also complicated because it sounds like there's something wrong or sinful or bad with the original covenant. And that's not what's being communicated. What's being communicated is that it is insufficient, imperfect, and incomplete. In verse 13, he continues and he says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The old covenant is not just aging, not like an old car that is kind of falling to pieces and now you need another one. It is being abolished. It is being canceled. Why? Because Jesus has completely fulfilled all the requirements of the old covenant, every aspect of it. And it's faulty in the sense that it is faulty if you continue in it. It wasn't faulty to begin with because it brought people to a realization that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So that's what he's talking about when he talks about a new covenant. He then continues and he says, and they shall not teach one another, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. Now, if you hear this, you're probably asking the question, then why am I listening to you? If we don't need teachers, that's right. It is the correct response. You know? When we read a scripture like that, we're going to be like, well, what is he talking about? We don't need teachers because all of us have access to God. All of us, what we heard last week, is that we have the spirit of the living God within us that is able to, what Jesus said, lead us into all truth then what do we need teachers for? But what he's talking about is teachers of the law. Because teachers of the law literally held the key and determined access. Because they had the scriptures, they were the doorkeepers. When, when someone says a doorkeeper, we think of like some kind of kind person that opens it. No, they were bouncers. They stood at the door at the entry and they told you, you could not come in. You could not come in because you were unclean. You could not come in because you weren't Jewish. You could not come in because you were female. You could not come in because you haven't offered these sacrifices. And, and that's what he's talking about them in terms of the teachers of the law. Now, you would think we would get better at this, but in, in the Dark Ages, what happened prior to the Reformation, which we talked about last week, is the same kind of thing happened. The Bible was only available in Greek and in Hebrew and in Latin. 
and very few people could read the Bible, and a lot of extra-biblical laws were put in place to be able to prevent people from actually engaging in a relationship with God. The new covenant foresees a time of no mediator—sorry, no mediators, because the entire covenant community under this covenant with Jesus will have personal knowledge of God. Why? Because God has dealt with a thing that prevents us from having personal knowledge with Him, which is our sin. And because Jesus fully and completely dealt with that, we now have open access. But that doesn't mean that we, we get arrogant and we say we don't need anyone, because teaching is something that is commanded in Scripture. Matthew 28, verse 19 to 20, and those of you that have been around the church for a while will know this. Go out into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is called the Great Commission. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. What Jesus is saying is, as you go and you preach this message of unmerited grace and mercy, as you go and preach the forgiveness of sins, as you go and preach the reality of access with God without needing to jump through any of those old covenantal rules, also understand that there are certain teachings that I gave when I was on earth. What was Jesus called when he was walking on earth? Rabbi, teacher, that's what he was called. He taught us to do certain things. Throughout the Bible, we know that parents have a responsibility to teach their children the way in which they should go. Scripture tells us that we are to teach one another. And Scripture also tells us that teachers will have a more severe judgment, which is why as someone that is called to teach, what you need to do is be able to understand the weight of what that means, because it is the way in which God equips his community of faith. And when Jesus was talking to teachers of the law, he was butting up against this very, very clear issue of access. Because the teachers of the law were full of pride, full of arrogance, and really what they wanted was to deny access to people that were not exactly like them. And so Jesus sits down with his disciples, and he sits down with the teachers of the law, and his disciples start eating, and they haven't washed their hands. Um, And the teachers of the law say, how is it that your disciples are unclean and they're actually participating in, in food? And this is what Jesus says to them. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adultery, sexual sin, theft, false testimonies, and insults. These contaminate a person in God's sight, but eating without washing hands doesn't contaminate in God's sight. Jesus is teaching them about where, what really matters in terms of God is what your heart posture is towards Him and towards others. And what the teachers of the law are doing is creating these hurdles for people that in those days were impossible for anyone to clear. It was literally your full-time job to actually clear those hurdles to be able to gain into the presence of God. So we look and we see that the new covenant's focus is the internal sphere of our lives. Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, the one thing I want us to understand clearly from this point is that a lot of us will emphasize, write the law on, sorry, we'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and we forget what the purpose of that is. And the purpose of that is as we continue the verse, 
because I will be their God and they shall be my people. It is God's way of creating a door of intimacy for us. It's basically saying, I am less interested in those things, but those things are necessary for you to come and have a relationship with me. Completely pure, completely holy, all light, no darkness. And in order for you to step into that relationship with me, I need, I, God, need to write this law on your minds and to write this on your hearts. Now remember the first, whoa, excuse me. Sorry, Fallon. Of course, my children are going to laugh the loudest at that, rather than cover my nakedness, you know. It's a whole story of judgment in that. In the, okay, okay. Where was I? The first covenant was written on what? Stone. Moses went up, received the Ten Commandments, written in stone. And what he's saying is, I'm going to do the same thing, but I'm going to write it on something that is living and active. I'm going to write it on your minds, and I'm going to write it on your heart. Because the heart is the wellspring of our thoughts, of our words, of our actions. Our mind is what we think and what we process. And our heart is what we feel. Our heart is usually deeper. Just be truthful, our heart is usually darker. Our heart is usually more complex than our minds. And so God is saying, I'm going to take care of both of these things. I'm going to write my law on your minds and on your heart. So why is God targeting our hearts? He's doing it because Scripture tells us that our hearts are deceitful, that our hearts are hard, and that our hearts are wounded. And so what, what is being targeted in all of this is the reality that we can't trust our own hearts. We have deceitful and sick hearts. And Jeremiah, the same prophet that is talking about the new covenant earlier in chapter 17 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? How many of you guys have done something? And later on, most of the time only when you're caught, but later on sit there and think, why the heck did I do that? I know better than that. I've been taught better than that. This isn't even as good as what I thought I would experience. But I said, why, why did I do that? It's your heart deceiving you. It's your heart that is sick. Because it's when we follow our unregenerate heart that we realize that actually the thing that God wants to do is to satisfy our every desire. But he can't do that if we follow our deceitful and sick heart. I am, I am the one that is deceived the most by what is deep inside of me. I am the one where my hidden heart will either lead me to moralism or will lead me to denial. So because I know that my heart is sick, because I know that it is deceitful, I, I tend to go one of two ways. I, I tend to want to fix it myself. Okay, I'm going to serve more, read more, pray more. I'm going to do those things and, and that'll change my heart. Or what I'm going to do is deny that I'm sinful at all because what that does is it lowers my self-esteem and then I begin to act in it. No, that's not how we deal with a sick heart. You know, as I was studying this, I was thinking of all the sayings we have when it comes to our hearts. Yeah, I'm sure you guys have heard this. My heart was in the right place. Is there a wrong place for your heart to be? I guess when you do something wrong, then your heart is in the wrong place. I'm not even sure I know what that means. Like my, right is, my heart is in the wrong, my, I know what this means. 
when you do something and you didn't intend for the outcome to be like that, to have hurt someone or whatever, and then you say, yes, but my heart was in the right place. That's probably a good way of looking at it. Maybe a more negative way of looking at it is when you were deep down selfish and you wanted to do something for yourself and you got caught in it, and now you double down on your deceitful heart and you say, yes, I did do that, but my heart was in the right place. So let's just forget about doing that. Your heart should not be ignored, but it certainly shouldn't be followed. We know this phrase, follow your heart, right? Follow your heart. Jesus tells us to follow him, and in following him, we say no to what we think makes us happy, because what we think makes us happy is not really that clear, because we have a deceptive and sick heart. And Jesus doesn't say follow your heart, he says follow me. How about this one? The heart wants what the heart wants. Right? Deception. When, when some, usually, this is my experience. When someone lies, they're trying to get out of something. So something has happened, and someone will lie, and I'll, I'll say, Jimmy, did you do this? And he's like, no, I didn't. You know? But deception is different. Deception is utilized in order to get you to do something. So someone will deceive you into thinking a certain way so that you can invest money in this. Or someone will deceive you into sending, what's it, Target gift cards to some guy who's calling you from the subcontinent, etc. Deception is designed to actually pull something out of you. And that's what our hearts do without us even knowing, knowing that. But when we submit to Jesus and we allow the Word of God to reshape us, we can confidently say, my heart wants what Jesus wants. So then we don't have to worry and constantly second guess our motivation because scripture tells us if we delight ourselves in the Lord, what? He will give us the desires of our heart. Now that is a bit of a cheat because if we delight ourselves in the Lord, what happens to our desires? They become his desires. Why would he not want to give us those desires? And so there's a safety in basically saying, I'm not following my heart. I want what Jesus wants. I want to follow Jesus. The heart wants what the heart wants. I want my heart reshaped by the power of God, the Spirit of God living in me, so that I know that as I delight myself in the Lord, He will grant me the desires of my heart. There is no danger in following a heart that has the new covenant of God written across it. Because we can be sure that ultimately our desires are his desires. The problem is most of us want to be loved and accepted, and the irony is that our desire to be loved and accepted, our heart makes us, leads us away from the only person that can fully love and accept us without any strings attached. And so our deep desire for love and affection leads me to this situation or that situation and leads me away from the one that actually can give me full love, knowledge, and affection. Romans 8, verses 26 to 27. Paul tells the church there that likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
the scripture is saying is oftentimes when we're in this place of crisis, when we're in a place of weakness, and we don't really know what to pray. And this is hard. For, for example, when, when we know that something is God's gift for us, that we want to be loved, we want to be cared for, that if we're single and we know that we desire to do that, and yet there is an opportunity for sexual intimacy outside of marriage, and, and we just don't know what to do. Our hearts are deceived. What we do is we go to the Spirit and we say, Spirit, intercede for me with groanings too deep for words. And the Spirit is committed to doing this, searching your heart because He knows the mind of the Spirit. And because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And I want to say this, if you think maybe your heart is deceptive and maybe your heart is sick, invite the Spirit to reveal that sickness. Now be prepared, because be careful what you ask for. I, um, I have a journal, it's a very honest journal, and I lost it for two days. Yes, okay? I was freaking out. I've never prayed for like an inanimate object in the way that I've prayed <laughs> for this. And then I said, God, you've got to help me, because if people find that, this is going to be ugly. And then I opened it, and I remember reading some of the ugly stuff there, and you know what? It wasn't ugly. I mean, it was ugly. But I saw God's faithfulness in revelation. And also, as I looked back on the journal, was really, really um, encouraged by the fact that I could hardly read any of it myself. So if anyone had found it, it would have been okay, you know. They would have needed the gift of interpretation. But as I looked through my journal, I realized that there were certain things that the Spirit of God was so committed to my wholeness that He was bringing up again and again. But there were also things that were done, finished. There were deceptions that, that He had brought up by the Spirit and not through my own energy and effort, but in partnership with the Spirit as I stepped into that, I could actually say, yeah, that's, that's done. That's finished. That's gone. So I want to invite you, invite the Spirit to reveal those things in your heart. Because what a deceptive heart needs is truth. The only way you combat deception is through truth. Not coddling not healing, these are available and necessary for different kinds of heart wounds, but not for deception. Deception is fought with truth. What is the truth about you? What is the truth about God? What is the truth about the world? This is where we get that truth. And so if you've sensed that you're being deceived, then ask God for truth. The Spirit reveals and leads us into truth. The second reason that our covenant, this new covenant is written on our hearts is because we have hard hearts. In Ezekiel 36, another prophet that was sent by God to help Israel realize um, that their kind of um, placating of God by playing covenant with him was not sufficient. He says this, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What is a hard heart? So a lot of us know a hard heart. It's bold, it's brash, it's the cynic. It's arrogant and smug, 
or like they say in the office, there's a lot of smudgeness here. There's a lot of smugness. You believe that you know better. George Carlin says this, think of how stupid the average person is and then realize that half of them are stupider than that. <laughs> That's a true cynic's view on life, right? That's how cynics view life. No one can be trusted except for me. Contrast God, contrast people, contrast anybody. I know better. Hebrews 3, verse 7 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. What were the Israelites always saying to Moses? It can't be you that only knows the right way. We had it better when we were back in Egypt. Why is it that God only talks to you? No, 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 we know better. We're going we're gonna to harden our hearts and we're going to choose our own way. This is the refusal of God's invitation. This is hardening your hearts against the gospel and not just our initial response to the gospel where you come to faith, where you repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus. This is also afterward. This is when God tells us to act in certain ways or leads or challenges us to step into certain things when he reveals and exposes things to us and we choose to harden ourselves against that. That's what a hard heart does when you're bold and brash. But there's also a hard heart that's internally resigned. The disciples in Mark 16, Jesus has risen. He's told people, he's, um, he's told the women, tell the disciples, and especially Peter, that I'm risen. Afterward, he appears to the eleven as they were reclining at the table, and he rebuked them, Jesus meek and mild. He rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. Why? Because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Now, our hardness, our, our inability to believe or to, or to actually harden our hearts against the gospel is, is caused by two things. One, a boldness, brashness, I know better, people are stupid and more than half of them are stupider than you think. Or this sense of actually, I've, I've been wounded. I believed him. I left everything and I followed him. And they killed him. And now they're looking for us. I'm not sure I can step into this again. I believe God and I trusted him. And, and now my life is a bigger mess than it was before I said yes to him. I believed that God could heal me, but he hasn't healed me. And I don't want to step into something else where God is inviting me to step into. And I'm not bold and brash. I'm just eternally resigned and my heart is becoming harder to the things of God and the voice of his spirit. However, the same man who said, think of how stupid the average person is, then realize half of them are stupider than you think, also says this, scratch any cynic and you will find a disappointed idealist. So it's my contention that no one starts with a hard heart. But a hard heart becomes sick when it's wounded and its response to not want to experience any further wounding is to just harden itself. And we can do that whether we're bold or brash or whether we're internally 
resigned. Wounded hearts are probably the most difficult because oftentimes we don't realize that we're acting out of our own wounding. We don't think of ourselves as those with hard hearts. A wounded heart is a result of direct wounding. Someone has harmed you. Someone has hurt you. Someone has abused you. This is not imagined. This is not inflated. This is real. This happened. The challenge with these things is that in our deep woundedness, we make God culpable of these things. And so we aren't able to separate the fact that I was wounded by this person. We also say, well, but God wounded me because he didn't prevent this from happening. And so our hearts become harder. This is even more intense when a, a caregiver or a leader, a coach, a teacher, a mother or father wounds us because we flip it subconsciously onto God. We say that this is how God will treat me. My father-in-law, Jim, who passed away two weeks ago, was an amazing man, but he moved to the United States under a promise. And the promise was he had built a business out of nothing. He'd built a business and he met this businessman who said that um, if you transfer your business to the United States, I'll be able to get you visas because Jim was coming to study in the seminary. And so Jim was deceived. And Jim handed over all of the company records, all of the company money, because this guy was going to set up a company here in the United States. Jim was completely ripped off. No money. It wasn't as bad as no money. I mean, Karen was here. She'll remember they lived in a one-bedroom, two-bedroom apartment with a toilet in the middle. The toilet would overflow. See, I think I'll tell a better story. It might not be true, but it's a better story, right? This is what wounded Jim even more. He didn't just take every penny that Jim had. He didn't just take the business. He pretended like he was not culpable. And then back in South Africa, he bad-mouthed Jim to all of the vendors. And so every relationship that Jim had built over years was destroyed in a matter of months. There's no way that Jim could come back and start the same business because everything had been taken from him. Now, that's a recipe for a cynical, cold, hard heart. And Jim is someone who submitted himself to Jesus. He's one of the most, he was one of the most generous people I'd ever met. He was one of the people who gave the benefit of the doubt to everyone. He was flown back to South Africa with his family on the kindness of the church. They didn't even have enough money for tickets back to South Africa. In that moment, he chose to believe that even though something wasn't good, that God would work something good out of it. And he chose to believe God and recognize and acknowledge that what happened was wrong. But he chose to separate what happened from him to a God that had promised him all things work together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Indirect wounding is even more difficult to deal with. Because indirect wounding is hard to heal from because often 
It isn't actually wounding. It's the fact that I had an expectation that Jeannie would treat me in a certain way and she never treated me in that certain way, even though she never said she was going to treat me in that certain way, now I'm wounded. That is the most complex kind of wounding to deal with because there's nothing to repent of. There's just, we're missing each other in terms of expectations. I never said I would do that, but I assumed that you would do that, and now I'm hurt by that. Indirect wounding also happens, and this is hard, guys. I think that we can take direct hits much easier than we can take it when people we love have been wounded. So this idea of, like, you can wound me, but I am so angry at you because of what you did to her. And we take the offense of other people, and that is hard to let go of. What's tough here is that we can never really know whose expectations were too high or who said they would do it. We can never really know whether someone meant to wound you and and did it by mistake or whether there was intentionality there. One of my lowest moments in ministry, I, do, you, do you guys remember when the Bluetooth thing was a thing, right? So um, I was wearing a Bluetooth earpiece, and it was Monday, and um, I'd taken the kids to the park, and I was talking to someone, and um, talking to them for about an hour, an hour and a half. And they put the phone down, and Karin said to me, um, Karin said to me, how was that? And I said, well... You know Jimmy. And the person hadn't put the phone down on the other side. And for about a week, I'm like, man, Jimmy's really, there's something off with Jimmy. Something off with Jimmy. I don't know what's happened. I didn't realize that he had heard what I said. And then Jimmy comes and Next week, I'm talking, obviously it's not Jimmy, okay? I'm using, come on people. <laughs> Everyone's sitting here thinking, what, you know. But then Jimmy comes up to me and I said, hey, how you doing? And he says, well, you know Jimmy. Dude. And then I realized, and I repented. And I said, bro, I know there's nothing I can do that will make those words feel better. I tried to explain myself, not a good course of action. Ultimately, I'd wounded him, whether I meant to or not. He was a victim of indirect wounding. Sometimes we do that. It was not my intention, I didn't have any bad motives, but that wounded him indirectly. Self-inflicting wounding. This is where we make decisions or we participate in behaviors that are not in line with God's pattern for our flourishing. And then we experience painful consequences. God says this is not how humans flourish sexually, and yet you dip into that. This is not how humans flourish relationally. This is not how humans flourish financially. And yet you dip into those, and you realize that you have made the decision you also, in these circumstances, realize that it's not out of lack of knowledge that you did that. You did that knowing that God had set a pattern for you to flourish and you stepped outside of the pattern and now you're dealing with a self-inflicted wound. That self-inflicted wound is causing your heart to become hard. 
Because your expectation was that even if I behaved in this way, that God should rescue me in that. No, this is the caveat. I have seen God rescue people from horrible choices and decisions they've made because God is so kind and so gracious. But he is not legally tied to do that. And when we step out of his pattern and we participate in these things and and hurt ourselves through self-inflicted wounds, the thing we have to do is what I did with Jimmy. Say, God, please help. I did realize what I was doing. I did realize that I stepped out. I need your grace. I need your spirit to empower me to say no to sin. The good news is that his law written on our hearts gives us eternal hope because it is written on the core of who we are. It changes us completely. I've said this before, but your past will shape your present, but it does not have to determine your future. And so part of the challenge that we've got to realize is that that as we progress, we will never be perfect the side of heaven. But that doesn't mean that we don't aim for perfection. Paul says, Paul says to Timothy, aim for perfection. Let your progress be known to many. And so what we do as Christ followers is we're not aiming for perfection, we're aiming for progress. So when I looked at that journal, I was both disappointed and encouraged. I was encouraged because there were certain areas of my life that I'd seen the Spirit of God move in with power, and then there were certain areas of my life where I had to throw myself freshly on the grace of God and say, please help. The interesting thing with Jesus is, Jesus understands this. He says, the kingdom of God is like leaven. And he uses it both negatively and positively. He uses it when, when he says, and a woman puts leaven in, and then she waits, and then the leaven does its work, and then, I don't know, bakers, what leaven does, you know. And, and I guess makes it bigger. So, but he also uses it on a negative side because he says, beware the Pharisees' leaven. And so what happens is, bakers, help me out here. What happens is, is when you put leaven or yeast in a thing of flour and water, there's a chemical, there's a chemical reaction. And it doesn't happen like this. You don't put the yeast in and the thing goes pop, Right? It just happens slowly, slowly. So one of the things that we recognize that the new covenant does is even though his law is written on our minds and our hearts, it works like leaven. The progress is slow. I do want to add this caveat and say this. I would say that generally speaking, the kingdom of God is like leaven. But there are moments of breakthrough. Where I, I knew a man, and I wish I knew more men like this, who was drug addicted, came to faith, never having a taste for drugs again. Literally delivered in that moment. That is a unique situation. What I've had is more situations of people crying out to God after times of failure. This is the key thing. I do not want this in my life. I want the leaven of your spirit to work. And I can see from last year to this year how you have, by your grace and by your spirit, enabled me to make progress in this area. A heart of flesh 
that has the law of grace written on it has the possibility of being wounded. Yes, it does. But a heart of stone will never grow. So what is our hope? Band, you can come up. Our hope for the deceitful heart is that Jesus is committed to revealing your heart to yourself in an environment of love and acceptance. Now, this doesn't sound much like hope, but Jesus is, a, is committed to exposing your deceitful heart to you. As that lands, for a lot of us, there's a sense of fear. Like, I don't know what to do with that. Well, he does. By his spirit, knows what to do with that. He's not just going to expose that and then say, there you go. He's not just going to say, Karin, you're a very cynical, angry person, obviously, which he's not. And then just leave her with that. He's going to come alongside her by his spirit and he's going to say, and let me lead you into freedom. Not let me lead you into doing things that will make people think you're less cynical. No, let me lead you into freedom because that is part of where you're bound. Now, I may be surprised by what's in my heart. And I often am. Jesus is not. Jesus knows what's in my heart and still draws alongside me and says, let me help you, son. He will lead me. He will expose me, but he will do that without shame or guilt or denial. The Spirit will give me the power to repent, to change, and to grow. That's what the new covenant is about. If I have a wounded or a hard heart, Jesus is committed to healing me, not only so that my past won't determine my future, but so that into the future, when you do and you will experience more pain and more betrayal, that you don't just shut your heart off and become hard again. That you realize, I've experienced something like this before. I know it took me a year to get over this. I don't want to waste that time, God. I want you to help me with my wounded heart. We will experience trauma again. People will prove to be untrustworthy but you can trust God. You will be wounded again, directly or indirectly, but you can trust God. Why? Because he says in his word, God works all things together for the good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It does not say all things are good. It does not say that we deny how painful and how wrong and dark those things are. It just says that ultimately we know that God uses those things to shape something for his glory and for our good. These are three scriptures that as I land show us exactly what Jesus meant when he talked about the new covenant. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, what? Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is not just that we can be healed, which is a great and amazing promise. 
This is that out of our healed hearts that are not hard, that are not deceptive, that are not sick, that are not wounded, that out of our hearts overflows a spirit that brings refreshment to other people. That's our promise. Not just that we will be whole, but that we will be able to bring wholeness to others. Later on, just before Jesus' death, Jesus takes the bread, give thanks, and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the meal and said, this cup is the new covenant by my blood, which is poured out for you. This is the new covenant. This is what I want you to understand. I am becoming the Passover lamb, the new covenant. It is my body broken and my blood shed. It means you have a new relationship with God. After Jesus is resurrected, people don't believe what he's saying. He's walking with these two guys on the road to Emmaus. And they're like, how can you be the only guy that doesn't know what's happened around here? And then it says that Jesus took them back to the scriptures and did exactly what the writer of Hebrews is doing and showed them how the Son of Man had to suffer, die, and was raised again as a fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. And he does that, and then he goes to sit down with them, and when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and then he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us? while he talked to us on the road and while he opened the scripture. Jesus Christ, in his life, death, resurrection, ascension, seated at the right hand of God is the fulfillment of the law and prophets. Jesus is the one that wrote his law on our minds and on our hearts. Jesus is the one that paid for that. Mercy Commons, can we, can we experience that fire and that water? the water gushing out of our hearts because our hearts have been made new, our hearts burning within us. Can we trust Him to bring healing to a wounded heart? Can we trust Him to bring softness to a hard heart? And can we trust Him to bring truth to a deceived heart? Jesus, we come before you this morning. Wounded hearts, hard hearts, deceived hearts. We thank you that you have put a new heart within us and that you have written your law of grace on it. We thank you that no matter what has been done, it is forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And I want to pray that as we just respond in worship, that you by your spirit would search us. Find deception, find sickness. That you would soften our hard hearts. Come do your work, Spirit of God. Um, since we were praying this morning, I feel like God's been speaking to me about how as human beings um, over time and just, you know, we, we build up these systems to provide for our needs in society, whether they're political systems, medical, educational, um, even communities that affirm our pain.
um, mental health, right, and just communities of people, but how there's been, and I've been feeling it personally, right, but um, how we've been feeling as of late that these systems are failing to meet our needs, and we're feeling frustrated, and we're feeling discouraged and even hopeless, and I just want to encourage us that though God provides through these systems, he's not limited by them. He actually is the ruler of them and he is unlimited in his provision for us. And he's not condemned us to them, um, to be limited by them, but actually that God is calling us um, to Christ-centered communities to stand together and to pray for our needs. Um, and, and that that's not limited to Sundays, but to spread outside of Sundays, to get together with people to believe with you, whether that's for healing, whether that's for financial provision, whatever it may be, that nothing's too small or too big for our God and that he wants to provide for us. Thanks, Carrie. Where our vision has been a mental health practitioner that has helped us, or a church, or family, or finances. And where that has been our vision for healing, I believe God's reminding us that some of those things are gifts from Him, but ultimately everything flows from Him. And even in taking the bread and the cup, we are saying this, we want you, Jesus, to be our vision. We want to recognize the gifts of common grace. We want to recognize in the gifts of Christ-centered community. But all of this comes because we trust you. Because your covenant is written on our hearts. That you took from stone and made into a heart of flesh. So as we take of what represents the body of Jesus, we do it knowing that he was broken for our wholeness. some other trusted leaders are going to be to my left, to your right, as she said. We are a community founded and secured in the grace of Christ, but we do want to offer prayer and stand with you in those moments. For the rest of us, we're just going to sing that refrain once more. We're going to go to the back, enjoy some fellowship, meet with each other, meet some new friends, talk about what God is doing. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.